0: Good evening, Grace Church. It is a privilege to be with you this evening. For our introduction this evening, I'd like to try something a little bit different and memorize two verses out of Exodus with y'all. Should just take about four to five minutes to do so if you can memorize at the speed of my family. So we'll see how this goes. You remember that the book of Exodus is essentially the revelation of the name of Yahweh. Moses asks, what's your name? And then Pharaoh asks, who is Yahweh. And while God's initial response is, I am who I am, I'm incomparable, you can't define me, after God redeems his people and takes them out of Egypt, Moses begs God, please show me your glory, show me the glory of your name. And so God puts Moses, you remember, in the cleft of the rock and passes by him, saying his name. And so I'll say a phrase and then you guys repeat after me. God said his name is Yahweh, Yahweh God, compassionate and gracious. I'll say it together. Yahweh, Yahweh God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. One more time. Slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness And truth. Now, together, Yahweh, Yahweh God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Now, to how many does he show this loving kindness? says, Who keeps loving kindness for thousands. Repeat, Who keeps loving kindness for thousands. And then a second who clause, Who forgives. Iniquity, transgression, and sin. Who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sins? So the two who statements. Who keeps loving kindness for thousands and who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. So let's try all four lines. See if we can get it. We'll repeat it a few times together. Yahweh, Yahweh God, compassionate and gracious slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Now we're going to move into the justice part of his name, and the key is we're going through there's seven total phrases, is to try to remember the first word from every phrase so we don't get stuck. So the first line, it was Yahweh. Second line, slow to anger. Third line, who keeps. Fourth line, who forgives. Let's repeat it one more time and then we'll go into God's justice. So Yahweh, Yahweh God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives transgressions, iniquity and sins, And then the the justice part says, Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Repeat that. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and the grandchildren. Visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren. Put together. Yet... He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. So to the third and fourth generations. So the last three lines dealing with God's justice says, Yet he will by no means gotta repeat it, you've got to engage all your senses if you're gonna remember this. So, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Okay, you ready to try the whole thing? We got some doubters here. We're going to try it. We'll do it two times. So, first line, Yahweh, Yahweh God, compassionate and gracious slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Most of you got it. We'll try one more time just to review. Yahweh, Yahweh God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet by no means will he leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. It's an amazing God we worship. An amazing God we worship. And the question is, wouldn't you want him to dwell here with us? Wouldn't you want to live with such a God, a God who is so incomparable, a God who is so matchless? And that's the theme of our time this evening, the dwelling of Yahweh. As a quick review of what we've seen so far in our first message, we saw the name of Yahweh. Yahweh explained that though he showed his power to the patriarchs in the book of Genesis, he did not display his immutable, loyal love, which he's now going to show in fulfilling his promises to Abraham's descendants even 430 years later. Because he is I am. Then in our second message, we saw the wonders of Yahweh, the plagues, the Red Sea Crossing, the manna, all demonstrating Yahweh's power over the gods of Egypt. And in bringing the people of Israel out of Egypt, God made for himself a people. Uh, We see that really clearly in Exodus 14 with the Red Sea Crossing. There's tons of creation language, a light out of darkness and spirit over the waters and dividing the waters and land appearing. So God made himself a people, which prepared for the next step, which was to instruct them. We saw the instruction of Yahweh, the law, that good instruction to help the people of God walk in communion with him. And so that now brings us to our final message, the dwelling of Yahweh. Tonight we'll look at the tabernacle and what the people of God needed to do for Yahweh to dwell with them. For an outline, we're just going to look at three simple steps for Yahweh to dwell with his people. Three simple steps for Yahweh to dwell with his people. First, adhere to his instruction. Second, avoid idolatry. And third, admire his glory. Adhere to his instruction, avoid idolatry, and admire his glory." So point one, adhere to his instruction. If Yahweh was going to dwell in the midst of sinful Israel, they would need to adhere to certain instructions so as to not profane his holy presence. Uh, Since God is so holy, there's very specific, very detailed instructions that they would need to obey meticulously. And not only that, Israel would need to construct a tabernacle for Yahweh to dwell in. If his glory was not properly protected, it would consume and kill them. And so starting in Exodus chapter 25, uh, the first step, God tells in the first nine verses to, to collect an offering to gather the materials. They plundered the Egyptians. They defeated the Amalekites already, so they had sufficient resources. God says he was looking for gold and silver, bronze, precious cloths, skins for the curtains, and acacia wood. Uh, Then notice in the second half of chapter 25, we get the description of the Ark of the Covenant, the table for the bread of the presence, the lampstand, menorah in Hebrew, menorah. Now you got at least one word that you know in Hebrew. Chapter 26, then we see the construction instructions for the actual tabernacle, how to make the wooden structure and the curtains for the walls. Chapter 27, the, the bronze altar, the outer court, Chapters 28 and 29, we're going to go through some of this, but I'm just trying to get the big picture here. We get the priest's garments, the the cleansing. Uh, The high priest had to wear an an ephod with 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel to to bear Israel's names before God. Get instructions on some some interesting things, the Urim and the Thummim, two stones to, to communicate with God some sort of yes or no system by which God would communicate his will to them. The priests would wear golden bells on their garments to announce their movements because they needed to be very careful how they moved about the tabernacle to not die. They also had to cleanse themselves with blood. The high priest had to put blood on their right earlobe, their right thumb, their right big toe. Chapter 30, you get the golden altar of incense, the washing laver. And then finally in chapter 31, God appoints two men, Bezalel and Oholiab, uh, to oversee the work. So, Let's try to take all of those components of the tabernacle and and sort of visualize what it looks like. I I was very tempted to just put a picture up on the PowerPoint, but that's cheating because the Israelites had to build this stuff without a picture, right? Just from this description. So we can do this. Uh, The dimensions of the outer court, this curtain wall, was 150 by 75 feet. I'm told... Uh, that this sanctuary is about 150 feet wide. I don't know if Burton did that on, on, on purpose, but it at least helps us to visualize how big the tab- tabernacle is. And it, it kept people kind of at a distance from the center tent, which is the holy place, which is only about 45 by 15 feet. And the entrance to the tabernacle out court was on the east side. And it was a 30-foot entrance. When you first came into the tabernacle, the first thing that you would see was the bronze altar. And that's where the priest, after killing the animal in the outer court, would then burn that animal on the bronze altar. The fire on the bronze altar had to stay lit at all times. And that's important because God is the one who lit the bronze altar at the end of Leviticus chapter 9. Yahweh lights it with his own holy fire. And the priest then needed to take that holy fire and bring it inside of the holy place to light the incense on the altar of incense. They could not use strange fire. They had to use God's fire. So that's the bronze altar. And it certainly seems purposeful that the very first step, the very first thing that confronts you when you enter into the tabernacle is an altar. Blood sacrifice. You you cannot draw near to Yahweh without sacrificial, substitutionary death. Everything is cleansed with blood, according to the author of Hebrews. So that's the first step. After the bronze altar was the bronze laver. Everything outside was of bronze. Everything inside was of gold. The bronze laver, obviously, to wash and purify yourself after the sacrifice. God said if the priests did not wash, they would die. Well, after the, the bronze laver, then you'd get the, the center tent. And the tent was made of two parts, the holy place and then the holy of holies. Uh, the the holy place, when you would enter into the holy place, uh, you would uh, see that its entrance also faced east, and it was covered in curtains, uh, beautiful colors, red, blue, and purple fabric. And as you entered in, as I said, everything is covered with gold inside the holy place. On your left-hand side, you'd see the golden lampstand, uh, the lampstand which always needed to stay lit, to give its light. Uh, The lampstand had the appearance essentially of a fruit tree, had seven candles. Then on the right was the table with the bread of the presence, 12 loaves of bread that were placed there every morning. God's provision of daily bread for the twelve tribes. As you continue then to the back of the holy place, right before the veil which separated the holy place from the holy of holies would be the golden altar of incense. That's where a particular fragrance was added every morning. A certain holy aroma associated with Yahweh that could not be duplicated with any other perfumes in the land of Israel. And this altar, like the bronze altar, had four horns on it, where blood from the altar was then placed. Then there was the veil that separated between the holy place and the holy of holies. Holy of holies is sort of Hebrew repetition, right, for the superlative. Uh, We have the king of kings as the best king, the, the lord of lords, the song of songs, the best song ever written. So this is the holiest place on all of earth. The place where only one man, the high priest, could could enter once a year on the day of atonement. Inside the Holy of Holies was just the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, This is a different Hebrew word than Noah's Ark. This simply refers to a small box. It was a small wooden box covered with gold. Inside of the Ark were the Ten Commandments, the two tablets. Later, Moses Moses adds a golden jar with the manna and also the rod of Aaron that budded. On the top of the ark was a a golden cover, all one solid piece of gold, where it had two cherubim looking down upon the mercy seat, or propitiation cover. And it was there on the mercy seat, on the propitiation cover, that God says in Exodus 25, there I will meet with you. The Shekinah glory dwelled there in between the cherubim. That's why the ark, many times in the Old Testament, is called Yahweh's throne. David also called it Yahweh's footstool on earth in First Chronicles 28. Because it was there on the day of atonement that the high priest would sprinkle blood seven times on that mercy seat to atone for the sins of the people. Tyndale, I think, is the one who invented the, the English word Atonement that we are at one, at one with God in that place of propitiation, that God and man who are enemies are brought together by this blood sacrifice, propitiating God's wrath against our sin. Okay, so now more or less, hopefully you have kind of a picture of all the objects, but what does it mean? Like, how how does that affect our lives? How do we live differently because of it? Well, interestingly, in the book of Hebrews in chapter 9, He introduces his chapter and he starts listing all the objects in the tabernacle. The lampstand, the table, the veil, the altar of incense, the ark. And it's like, finally, yes, God is going to explain all this beautiful symbolism and tell us all the details behind it. And instead he says in Hebrews chapter 9 verse 5, Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. And you're like, oh man. (laughs) But we have to understand that's purposeful. Right? This side of glory, we are apparently not meant to understand the finer details of these things, but we will someday. And one of the main reasons we know we will is because Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5 tells us that the earthly tabernacle that Moses built was constructed after the pattern of the heavenly tabernacle, right? the pattern that Moses saw on Mount Sinai. The real tabernacle is... Wasn't on earth. The real tabernacle is in heaven. Moses' tabernacle was the shadow, the copy of the real one. So if God decided it was best for us to wait, it's best for us to wait. But there are two things that I think we can observe. Two things. First, the New Testament lists many ways in which the tabernacle is a type of Christ. So Let's go back to the entrance of the tabernacle and work our way through. First, we have the, the bronze altar for sacrifices, to sacrifice lambs before God. And we know that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, burnt on the altar by God's holy fire, John 1.29. Then we get to the laver. Where the people of the, the priests were were washed, and we know that Christ's cross is the labor that sprinkled us clean, that washed us with water so that we would not die. Hebrews ten twenty two. Then we enter the holy place, and on our left hand side we see the menorah, which shined God's light, and we know that Jesus is the. Light of the world, and to our right we have the table with the bread of the presence, and we know that Jesus is the bread of life. and And next we reach the altar of incense, and Ephesians five two says that Jesus offered Himself as a fragrant aroma to God. And next we get to the veil, which prohibited man from entering into God's presence in the holy of holies, and Hebrews ten twenty says that Jesus' body is the veil through which we gain access into the Holy of Holies. And then we get to the ark, which held the law, and Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. And then we get to the mercy seat, the propitiation cover. And Paul tells us in Romans 3.25 that Jesus is the mercy seat. The Greek word there translated propitiation in many translations is that the place of propitiation. Elsewhere translated in the New Testament as mercy seat. And then finally we get to the Shekinah glory, which dwelled between the cherubim. And Jesus is the embodiment of the Shekinah glory. Jesus is God made flesh. It all points to Jesus, the entire tabernacle. Second thing that I think we can observe is that as you're reading through this section on the tabernacle, whether you're reading in English or Hebrew, You start to notice that the language of the Garden of Eden is everywhere in the tabernacle. I just mentioned a few things. There's a lot. But they both speak of pure gold. They both speak of precious stones. They both speak of the Sabbath. Adam in Genesis 2 was to serve and to keep the Garden of Eden. The priests are to serve and to keep the tabernacle. Same two verbs. Both entrances faced east. There's flowers in the garden. There's flowers in the tabernacle. The menorah in the tabernacle, as I mentioned, has blossoms and spherical knobs representing fruit. Obviously, there's fruit trees in the garden. They both have a threefold division. You have earth, and then you have Eden, and you have a garden inside of it. In the tabernacle, you have the outer court and the holy place, and the holy of holies. In both accounts, there are garments, same Hebrew word. In Genesis 3, God makes Adam and Eve garments to cover their nakedness. In Exodus 28, the priests needed to cover their nakedness with a garment. Yahweh walked in the garden in Genesis 3. Now Yahweh walks amongst his people in the tabernacle. Man was made in the image of God. The tabernacle was made in the image of heaven. Both were places where Yahweh spoke to his people. Adam hid from the presence of the Lord. In Genesis 3, Aaron ministered before the presence of the Lord. Same phrase. And perhaps most noteworthy, both had two cherubim protecting entrance to God's dwelling. So so what's the point of this comparison? Well, due to mankind's sin, the garden was lost. We could not enter into God's presence. God's presence abandoned the earth. But by adhering to God's instruction, specifically through blood sacrifice, God was making a way for him to dwell once again with his people, to get the people back in the garden, if you will. And we'll have to see, to see if Israel can follow these instructions, if they can adhere to God's instructions so that Yahweh can dwell permanently with them. And that brings us to point two, but before we get there, Let's try our verses again. Got to repeat. Repetition. So say with me. Yahweh, Yahweh God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation, You'll have it by the end of the night. And hopefully that'll serve you for this upcoming week. So second step is avoid idolatry. Turn to Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32, avoid idolatry. Let's let's read a few, well, at least the first verse here. Exodus 32, 1. Then the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain. And so the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, Arise, make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. (laughs) The impatience and unbelief is really remarkable. Uh, This is who we all are without Christ, without grace. Now one clarification, you'll notice most Bibles have a a note on the word gods there saying that it could also be God, capital G. Uh, The Hebrew word Elohim can be translated either way. And I believe the best way to understand the sin of Exodus 32 is not that Aaron, who is a believer, is all of a sudden bowing down to the Egyptian pantheon or or trying to worship some other foreign gods. No, in in verse 4, notice it says that After Aaron fashioned the calf out of gold, he said, this is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of Egypt. And then notice in verse 5 explicitly, it says, and Aaron looked and built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to whom? To the gods? No, he says, tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh. So this is idolatry, Because they are trying to worship Yahweh syncretistically, the way that pagans worship their gods, right? They're they're representing Yahweh with this young, mighty bull, this strong image. Not only that, we see more of their syncretism in verse 6. Notice it says, so the next day they rose early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. And that last phrase rose up to play is a euphemism for sexual sins. Some of them mix their idolatry with drunkenness and fornication. Again, just like the pagan religions of their day with their temple prostitutes. And, and we know that because Paul in 1 Corinthians ten five says so. He says, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased. They were struck down in the wilderness. And these things happened to them, Paul says, as examples for us, that we would not crave evil things as they craved. He says, do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play, nor let us act in sexual immorality as some of them did. So obviously, as Israel is is trying to worship Yahweh in this syncretistic, pagan way, God is furious with his people because his first command was to worship him and to not commit idolatry in the Ten Commandments. So he tells Moses in verse 10, Exodus thirty two ten, now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation out of you. Like, what? Like God is going to take Israel out of Egypt and now he's just going to annihilate them all. He's just going to wipe them off the planet. What's going on? Well, This is a clear example of an anthropomorphism, a time when God is speaking in human terms. He's trying to express how much he hates Israel's sin. He obviously knows he's not going to destroy Israel. But he's trying to move in Moses to act like the kind of Messiah that Israel needs. And Moses does. He he pleads with Yahweh. He begins to to appeal to God's character, to God's mercy and grace. He appeals to God's reputation. He says, what is the world going to think if you bring Israel out of Egypt and then you can't preserve them in the desert? Moses says, think of the glory of your great name. Think of the promises you made to Abraham. Moses is teaching us how to pray, to, to appeal to God's character and promises. Right? We say, Lord, forgive me. Not because I deserve it. Forgive me because you, Yahweh, are a God full of compassion and grace. We say, show me that grace, Father. And because you promise, you promise that if I confess my sins, you who are abounding in truth, be true to your word, Lord, and forgive. And so Exodus 32, verse 14, Yahweh relents from wiping out Israel. Interestingly, then Moses gets down the mountain to see for himself what Israel was doing, the dancing, the golden calf in verse 19, and Moses couldn't take it. He breaks the tablet. He grinds the golden calf to powder and he makes the people drink it. He calls the faithful to himself. Only the tribe of Levi comes. So he tells them in verse 27, Kill every man his brother and every man his friend and every man his neighbor. And they killed 3,000, which is why the tribe of Levi becomes ordained as the faithful priests because they served Yahweh. Well, then on the next day, Moses continues to to act as this faithful leader. He heads heads up back to the mountain to make atonement for the people. And this is what it says in Exodus 32, verse 31. Then Moses returned to Yahweh and said, Alas, this people has committed a great sin. They have made gods of gold for themselves. But now if you will forgive their sins, right? He's asking God, forgive their sins. But if not, please blot me out of your book, which you have written. Moses would rather face God's judgment himself than watch his people suffer. Which again points to who? Points to Christ. Because it is Christ who doesn't just express A desire to take our judgment like Moses does, like Paul does later on in Scripture. No, Christ actually does suffer the judgment that we, his people, deserve so that we can go free. So, in summary, can Israel avoid idolatry? Is Israel capable of avoiding idolatry so that Yahweh can dwell with them? Doesn't look good, does it? Israel is so idolatrous, so wicked. And Yahweh is so holy, so pure, it appears he'll just burn them down. Notice in, in chapter 33, verse 3, Yahweh tells Moses, You go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst because you are a stiff-necked people, lest I consume you on the way. God says, Moses, just just go yourself. I, I can't go with you because Israel's so wicked I'd have to kill you. However, this is so remarkable. It's exactly at this moment in Exodus chapter 33, when, when Moses heads back up to the mountain, that he says, Yahweh, show me the glory of your name. Right? It's so profound. It's, profound. it's what we saw this morning. It's at this moment of Israel's greatest sin, this moment of the greatest judgment that they deserve, this, this golden calf incident, that then God tells Israel his name is what? Yahweh, Yahweh God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Right. It's it's at the moment that Israel needs this, this judgment that, but Yahweh extends an offer of his salvation and says, come to me, come to me and be saved. And that gets us to our third step. But let's, let's repeat our verses before we get there. So, Yahweh, Yahweh God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands who forgives iniquity transgression and sin yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations third step admire yahweh's glory let's let's read a little bit exodus 33 verse 18 Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. God responds, verse 19, he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of Yahweh before you, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. Then Yahweh said, Behold, there is a place by me and you shall stand there on the rock and it will come about while my glory is passing by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you shall see my back but my face shall not be seen. So so this is a physical manifestation of the glory of Yahweh. Yahweh would let his glory break into his physical creation in front of Moses. Now, we understand that Yahweh is an omnipresent spirit, right? So, so the only one that can see the totality of God would have to be omnipresent. So uh, God is the only one that can see the totality of God. But to demonstrate how glorious he is, God tells Moses that no man could even survive a sort of localized manifestation of his glory. Uh, demonstrating that... Though we can know God partially, we can't know God exhaustively. So God says to Moses, you can see my back, you cannot see my face. We cannot know God exhaustively, we can know him truly. Well then in, in verse 5 of chapter 34, Exodus 34, 5, it says, Then Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood there with him, and he called upon the name of Yahweh. Now, it seems to me that we have multiple persons of the Godhead here. Christ standing beside Moses, calling for the Father to pass by. It's similar to what we see in Genesis nineteen twenty four, when Yahweh is standing next to Abraham and he rains down fire and brimstone from Yahweh, who is in heaven. So, Yahweh's standing next to Moses, holding him in the cleft of the rock. And then it says in verse 6 that Yahweh passed by in front of him. And called out, Yahweh, Yahweh God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. And notice what Moses did when he heard that for the first time. And Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship. What a lesson that is. How slow we are to worship, to bow before the glory of our God. Moses said, verse 9, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, I pray. Let the Lord go along in our midst, even though they are a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us as your own inheritance. And God says, yes, he will go. Moses has been up on the mountain 40 days without food or water. An obvious miracle, a man can't live more than about three days without water. Moses then comes down from the mountain. He doesn't know his face is shining (laughs) because he's been looking at the glory of God. The people are afraid, so he puts a veil over his face. And every time he went in to speak with Yahweh, he'd come out and his face was shining. and He'd have to put a veil over it. Well, let me just... Say before I make a few observations, the last six chapters of Exodus, Exodus 35 through 40, belabor the point, it's all repetition, it just belabors the point that Israel constructed the tabernacle just as Yahweh commanded. So in chapter 35, they make the contributions, in chapter 36, they construct the tabernacle, in chapter 37, the ark, the table, the lampstand, and Moses repeats every time, seven times, they did it just as Yahweh commanded. And that's repetition that instructs us that yahweh demands to be worshiped precisely as he instructs we can't alter anything we can't change anything there's meaning behind what god does that we cannot possibly comprehend so we just need to obey and under moses's leadership they finish the tabernacle exactly one year after the exodus and the book of exodus ends this way in chapter 40 verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. So they built it, they finished it, just as God stated, and so God then filled the tabernacle. So what, what can we learn from all of this? Well, I think the main takeaway is that Yahweh has told us the meaning of his name so that we would admire him, so that we would worship him for who he is. Right? Earlier in chapter 33... Chapter 32, Israel fabricated an idol and tried to worship Yahweh after an image that did not represent him. And now God's correcting them and graciously telling them who he really is. And that's so helpful because today there is so much idolatry, so many false notions of who God is, even amongst Christians. If you ask someone who God is, you'll hear, well, God is love or, or God is mercy, God is kind. Maybe you'll run into a fire and brimstone preacher who says God is holy and filled with wrath. And while all of these things are are true, they don't represent the perfect harmony, the perfect unity that we see in God's answer, which is that though he will not leave the guilty unpunished, he abounds in loving kindness. So on the one hand, he visits the iniquity of the fathers on the third and fourth generation, but he shows loving kindness to thousands. So again, Yahweh does hate the ungodly. And if you do not know Christ, if you're still in your sins today, God will pour out his wrath upon you. You cannot escape. No guilty person will go unpunished. But God's telling us here that that's not his first impulse, if you will, right? Right? God says in Ezekiel 33, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked would turn from his way and live. God takes pleasure in repentance because he wants to show compassion and grace, which is why he sent his son to offer salvation to everyone who believes, as we heard this morning, come to me and live. God wants mercy to triumph over judgment. And that is gospel gospel to those of us who believe. So I think the lesson is we need the entire Bible, not just these two verses. We need the entire revelation of God to teach us who God is so that we can admire him and worship him for who he is. Just a quick comment since I promised you last week that phrase that God visits the iniquity on the children and their grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. That does not mean that God will judge children for the sins of their fathers. We know that. Because Deuteronomy twenty four sixteen says, Fathers shall not be put to death for their sons, nor sons shall be put to death for their fathers. Each shall be put to death for his own sin. So I think probably the easiest way to understand this phrase, which is also in Exodus 20, verse 7, is simply that God punishes everyone who hates him. And so if a particular sin is repeated over multiple generations... God's going to judge them all, not just the parents who committed it first. If, if a man buys an idol and puts it in his house, and then his son inherits the house and keeps the idol there, God's saying, I'm not just going to judge the father. I'm going to judge the son and keep on judging it. Furthermore, the consequences of sin get passed down. Right? If a mother takes drugs while she's pregnant, it's not as if God just wipes that slate clean and the son is born healthily the son is going to deal with the consequences of his parents' sin, at least in a temporal sense. So God has told us that that he's just, but it's as if his his disposition, his desire is to show this grace and this loving kindness which abounds in him. The problem is, even though God is wanting to forgive, it appears that Israel is just too far gone, too idolatrous. We know Israel. We've seen their unbelief, their inability to repent. It seems there's no way for Yahweh to dwell with them permanently. And, and as we face the, sort of trace the presence of Yahweh throughout the Old Testament, we find that that's actually the case, right? They try to use the Ark of the Covenant as a sort of magical amulet. In 1 Samuel chapter 4, it gets taken to the temple of Dagon. Uzzah has the audacity to touch the Ark of the Covenant. Yahweh kills him. Finally, in Ezekiel chapter 10, the presence of Yahweh, the Shekinah glory, abandons the temple, and does not return. So Yahweh's tabernacle, right? these instructions, they were perfect. And if Israel had adhered to its instruction, God would have dwelt with them permanently. But they could not avoid idolatry. And so this law, as Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 3, became a ministry of death to them. They could not admire God's perfections. They couldn't see his glory Had a veil. Paul says that the veil that Moses wore illustrated that they were blind to God's glory. Paul says a veil to this day lies over their hearts that prevents them from seeing God's glory because only in Christ is the veil taken away. Which is why the law was their tutor to lead them to their coming Messiah, to to embrace the glory of God in the face of Christ. But sadly, when the presence of the glory of God, which left in Ezekiel 10, returns in John chapter 1, when the word who is God became flesh and tabernacled among us, the word there to dwell is to tabernacle. His people were not waiting for him. His own did not receive him. Rather, they crucified him. And that was because that was God's plan all along. Because it's exactly how he was going to show himself to be a God, compassionate and gracious. Christ, our great high priest, would make a blood offering, sacrificing himself for our sins. That's what the earthly tabernacle pointed to. Christ, according to Hebrews 9.11 after dying on the cross, says that he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy places once for all. And there, through his blood, he gained access for all of us to enter into the heavenly holy of holies. Because Christ took God's judgment for all our sins. And Christ gave us a physical sign of this, that we have access to the Holy of Holies. And how did he do that? He tore that veil, that earthly veil from top to bottom in two. Thereby anchoring our hope inside the veil forever, Hebrews 6 says. And then having made atonement for our sin, what did Jesus do? He sat down. The author of Hebrews makes much of this. Remember, there's no golden chair in the tabernacle. There's no bronze bed in the tabernacle. There's no place to sit, no place to rest. Because the work of atonement was always ongoing. If a priest sat down, that would signify that the people of God were just as holy as Yahweh. That there was no more atonement needed. That's impossible in the old covenant. But when Jesus dies, what does he cry out? He cries out, to "Die! it has been finished. And then he passed through the heavens, the three heavens, the atmosphere, the space, into God's presence, pictured in the outer court, the holy place, and the holy of holies. And after passing through that heavenly tabernacle and making atonement, Christ sat down, converting that mercy seat of God, once guarded by the cherubim, which once keeping us away from God's presence, which now becomes to us a throne of grace to find help in our time of need, Hebrews 4 16. And we're invited, not just having access, we're invited to draw near with confidence, Hebrews 10 14, because by one offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. What the law could not do, Christ accomplished fully. He made us holy as holy as Yahweh is holy, so that Yahweh could dwell with us unhindered. And this is already a reality in the spiritual realm. And we know that because of the indwelling of the Spirit today, right? The word indwelling is just another word for tabernacle. Tabernacle in Hebrew just means dwelling. And listen to what Jesus says in John fourteen twenty three. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our dwelling with him. The Trinity tabernacles inside of the believer today and the only way that God could dwell is if we're new creations completely sinless in our immaterial part. We're obviously still enslaved in these bodies of death. But Christ has made us ready to put off this body of death Receive a new body and dwell with Yahweh once again upon a new earth. What a privilege to think that our God, our God dwells within us. What an exhortation to walk in holiness. Knowing that the God who is so holy that he's burning people up in Israel is dwelling within us. Christ has not only made us ready today, like I said, he's also prepared us for heaven to physically dwell with God in his garden once more, which is what we see, if you'll allow me two more minutes in conclusion, in Revelation chapter 21 and 22. In Revelation 21 and 22, we see all the Garden of Eden in tabernacle language return. In Revelation 21, verse 3, notice that God inspires John to write, Behold the tabernacle of God among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And we see the precious stones again, and we see pure gold. We see the tree of life is back. And though Moses could only see God's back, John tells us in Revelation 22, 4, and they will see his face, all the splendor of the glory of God shining in the face of Christ. And it's not that we're just getting back to the original Garden of Eden like a take two, let's try this again. No, God has elevated us into this sinless, perfected state where we can experience a better garden. Adam could never walk with Yahweh with a full understanding of who Yahweh is, a God compassionate and gracious, abounding in loving kindness because before he sinned, he could never experience redemption. He could have never known truly who Yahweh is. But we, after Yahweh's redemption is done, will admire Yahweh for all of his attributes, for all that he is, and we will become like him in all his communicable attributes and dwell with him in a regenerated earth. It's amazing what God has done. We who did not adhere to God's instructions, we who could not avoid idolatry, we who would not admire his glory, God redeems us and transforms us into his image to be compassionate and gracious like him so that he can dwell with us. And in heaven, in heaven we will adhere perfectly to his instructions. There's no disobedience in heaven. And we will avoid idolatry. Revelation 21.8, all idolaters will be cast out of heaven and we will admire his attributes perfectly because he himself will illuminate us with the light of his glory, Revelation 22, 5. What a plan. What a plan of redemption. All pictured in the physical realities we see in the book of Exodus. What a God. What a God we worship. Let's close saying our verses one last time. But remember, we don't memorize for memory's sake. We memorize to meditate. We memorize to, to worship, to admire the God revealed in Scripture. Yahweh, Yahweh God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives transgression, iniquity and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Father, what can we say? You are matchless. You are Yahweh, the great I am. Help us to worship you. Help us to love you. Help us to long to see you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your spirit. Amen.